Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden from the Center for Foreign Policy and African Diplomacy at the University of Johannesburg. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. And uh, a very good afternoon to our special guest, uh, Professor Giles Mohan from the Open University in Leicester. Uh, in probably not the sunny UK, I would imagine it's pretty cloudy there. That's just a safe bet, isn't it, Professor Mohan? <laughs> You're about 98% chance of being correct, so, and today you are. So, uh, well, there we go, so I sure. called it right. Um, and um, Giles is a professor of international development at the Open University, and he's also a prolific writer on, uh, on China-Africa relations and uh, does quite a bit on that. And in particular, we're going to talk about an upcoming chapter that in a book that, uh, that he's writing, and I'll get to that. It was a great name. It was The Rise of the Global South. I love that name. And, uh, and, and, and Professor Giles uh, Mohan wrote uh, a, a chapter called Migrants as Agents of South-South Cooperation, the Case of Chinese in Africa. So it's a great timing to talk about immigration, uh, Chinese immigration to Africa, which is, of course, a very, very sensitive issue and one that affects so many parts of this relationship. So we'll get his take on that. Then we're going to talk about a new immigration policy that's coming out in Ghana. And, and as part of that, the timing came was just amazing. Um, there was a case of uh, a, Ghana- a Ghanaian immigration official who was smuggling Chinese into the country. And this has really been a very sensitive issue in Ghana in particular because of the questions of illegal gold mining as well as illegal logging. So we'll talk about that. And finally, we're going to talk about agency. Now, this is a word that came up a couple weeks ago, but it's something that's been a theme on our on our Facebook page for the past couple weeks about can African governments reorient this relationship with China so that it's more equitable? Can they add a stronger regulatory backbone to the relationship, if you will? And so we'll get uh, Giles's take on that. So let's get started very quickly on this topic of Chinese immigration. And again, uh, Professor, you are you know authoring a new chapter in an upcoming book on this, so it's been a lot on your mind. And I'd like to go to Hong Kong first before we get started to hear a a quote from uh, Howard French. And many of you may know Howard French. He's a former New York Times correspondent in both Africa and China. He's also a professor of journalism at Columbia University. And last July, he gave a uh, a presentation at the Hong Kong Foreign Correspondents Club. And one of his key points was the fact that Chinese immigration to Africa is now becoming so large that it will eventually eclipse the influence that the state-to-state relationship has. Let's take a listen. I have come to believe that the most important aspect of China's relationship with Africa is this movement of peoples. That the Chinese state has its own policies, and we had a little debate yesterday at our conference about how coordinated and centralized those policies are, and, you know, reasonable people can disagree. But I think however coordinated and centralized these policies are, they are being outstripped by another factor, and that is this human factor of the large-scale movements of people who come in the ways I've described, who build out their own networks, who are thereby creating these feedback loops uh, of trade, commerce, human relations, culture, um, sometimes intermarriage, etc., etc., between China and Africa, that are going to, over time, I think, become much more important than uh, the state-to-state relations, and will uh, frustrate Uh, in some cases, um, Beijing's efforts to define its policy uh, toward Africa in general and toward specific specific countries in particular because the perception of China will be shaped in those countries by the 
the place that those Chinese communities begin to assume in these countries and by the relationships that the people in those communities are able to build good or bad in those places. Um, and that the Chinese state will not simply not be able to control all of that. Okay, Giles, there you have it. Uh, Howard French, kind of his take on it. What would you say? Is he is he correct in saying that the the that just the volume and the scope and the scale of Chinese immigration into Africa is having that profound of an effect? I think I think he is largely correct. Um, I mean, as we've seen, most of the focus when we talk about China and Africa has been on these big intergovernmental kind of projects. You know, the dams, the the oil, the, the harbors, or whatever. Yet. You know, for, for most of Africans in in Africa, it's these uh, you know smaller businesses, restaurants, traders. That's what China in Africa means for them, and arguably that's going to have a much more profound effect, I think, on African development than some of these very big showcase projects that that the media in particular love to pick up on. So yeah, I broadly agree with with uh, Howard French's take on that one. Okay, Cobus. Yeah, no, I tend to agree as well. Um, I think it's not only, not only, you know, kind of directly in, in how um, the migration affects, you know, relations between Chinese and Africans, but also, um, you know, kind of the, the way that it changes the structure of African society generally. Um, and that I, I think it will probably, you know, change the way that African societies think about themselves. I think, though, that it's going to be a painful process, you know, kind of judging from, from uh, you know, kind of voices that are here in Africa, that's, it's going to be a, a complicated and, pro, uh, and painful process. And, and uh, I'm not sure how willing Africans necessarily are to, to, to change their own self-perceptions, but it should be very interesting to see how it changes. Okay, we're going to get into that topic a little bit later in the conversation. Giles, I'd like to kind of start with some basics, in part because and when we look at the, the totality of the China-Africa relationship, this is one of the, the most poorly understood aspects of it. So when we talk about the Chinese and going to Africa, those are two very ambiguous words in terms of the, des- you know, <laughs> the source and the destination. So can you just kind of step back a little bit and break down those terms of who, who the Chinese are and where are they going? And just kind of give us an overview of the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, one of the big mistakes people have, have tended to make uh, is that, you know, this the, the China in Africa is a relatively recent thing. And, you know, there's been some wonderful studies, particularly by Chinese scholars, for example, Lian Shan, who has shown that, you know, over five, six, seven hundred years, the Chinese have been engaging with Africa, particularly East Africa, in, in, that, in the longer term. Um, but certainly in, in our, our research, we found that, say, in Ghana, where we, we were doing some of the research, um, you know, there'd been... People from Hong Kong had been in there since the 1950s and 60s, so they were into the second and third or fourth generation of, of families in, in working in in manufacturing and trade. So this idea that this is a very recent phenomenon is the, one of the first myths we have to dispel. Having said that, there has obviously been a great increase over the last five to ten years in Chinese migration, illegal, legal, some of it tied to these big state projects, some of it independent. So the, the picture is very complicated. And, and one of the problems we have is is the numbers. And I think this will, this will we'll come on to this a little bit when we talk about the kind of human uh, smuggling issue, is that we just don't know really how many Chinese there are in various African countries. So the data such as it exists has these massive ranges, say from 100,000 to 400,000, you know, it's it's in that kind of scale. So I know Howard French has put kind of one to two million in total in in Africa of Chinese migrants. But, you know, anybody who knows anything about this subject would just 
put huge inverted commas around any quote because it's such a kind of guessing game. Okay, but um, and and the, I get a, you know but, it's funny that I get contacted every few months by journalists going to Africa asking me that question of well how many not, how many are there and they say can I go to the embassy to find out as if the embassies from any country are tracking their, their civilians who are there. Why is it so difficult for 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 anybody academics governments to get a hold on exactly how many people are there? I think it's a combination of factors. I mean, you can go to the ministries of, or the, the embassies of the Chinese embassy in a particular country and they'll say, this is how many we think are here based on largely because that's based on who they think are there on, on official projects. Um, but then obviously there's people who come outside of those projects and then you're down to the data being collected by the, uh, ho- you know, the host country's immigration service. And, and as we know, that in many countries that kind of data is poorly collected is you know it's and so really on, on both the chinese and the african side the, the, the estimates are very sketchy and then of course there's illegal migrants who by their very nature don't even appear on any anybody's uh, radar so the figures do uh, shift a lot i mean but we do what we do know is that it's the the the, the chinese and i want to kind of get away from using that term in, in a minute but certainly they uh, tend to have gone to the countries where um the economic prospects are greatest, obviously. And, you know, so the, the biggest movements have been in those areas which are producing oil and, and other strategic minerals. So we see the biggest growth in countries like uh, Nigeria, Angola, uh, certainly a lot in South Africa. But again, that's a very long historic community uh, in, in South Africa. So there's five or six countries where the majority of those migrants are. But anybody who travels in, in, in Africa these days will we'll we'll notice a, a growth just on the streets of, of, of Chinese people they see. But certainly, I'd say, it's not you know, evenly spread across all African states. You know, Cobus, Giles brings up this very interesting point of data, and this, of course, is something that you and I have been talking a lot about in the context of the aid data report that's come out and the controversy surrounding that, which was that the, the, these, the, the numbers matter because what ends up happening is that this gets into the collective imagination uh, of people. You know, it's funny that, uh, Giles, you, you, you have a quote in your, in your chapter, there is a divide in the public rhetoric of China-Africa relations and the real world. And so much... Much of that, I agree, is defined by data and the numbers. So I guess, Cobus, the lesson that I'm taking away from Giles' comments, as well as what we've heard over the past few weeks, is that if you ever see a number without context in a news report about the precision of how many Chinese are in Africa, don't believe it. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. You know, one of the complicating factors is also is the relationship, the complicated relationship between the Chinese community and the Chinese embassy, frequently in many African countries. I attended a conference recently where people were, you know, one of the papers was about how a lot of of Chinese in a particular African country, I think it was in Zambia, frequently actually avoid dealing with the embassy because, you know, once once you get registered by the embassy, then you also um, there are a lot of, um, of of claims that are then made on your time. You know, whenever you need to do a lot of favors and cooperation and so on with the embassies, so frequently Chinese people tend to stay away from the embassy as far as possible. So, you know, in certain cases, it, the embassy would be would have the least idea of how many Chinese people would actually be in, in, in a particular country. And ironically, one yeah. of the, the things that I've read on, on a lot of the Chinese social networks is bitter complaints from, from Chinese residents in, in Africa, across the continent, how the embassies don't do anything for them and don't help them and don't provide any services of any kind. So the embassy... I I think that's one of the... Yeah, go ahead. I agree. I mean, one of the... the, I think, you know, the the way the rhetoric in the West has shifted, I mean, to some extent, is 
you know, people talked about this notion of a Beijing consensus and people talked about China Inc. And so there was, you know, it, it, it belied the kind of ignorance of kind of Western commentators talking about China as this monolithic kind of actor. And therefore they assumed that all Chinese were part of some big kind of project. And then when you get onto the, into the ground, you find actually, as you say, you know, for the vast majority of Chinese migrants in, in whichever African country, they have nothing to do with, with the embassy. There's no state agenda. They're there as independent migrants. And we've got lots of stories about how and why people ended up in a particular part of Africa doing what they're doing. And it just, I think it feeds that myth that there's somehow this state-guided Africa policy. I mean, clearly there is an Africa policy, but, uh, and, and this comes back to the kind of the nub of this whole conversation, is that for most of the Chinese in Africa, that's not irrelevant, but it's, it doesn't directly impact on their lives. You, you know, it's interesting for that when I talk to a lot of, uh, of Africans, particularly Congolese where I used to live, they, when we talk about perceptions, there's a, a big sense of confusion because they read that China is the second largest economy in the world. They look at the pictures of Shanghai and Beijing. They think of the super modern. They think of it as a first world advanced you know, economy, and they think, why would they want to come to Africa? And so I think it brings up the question now of, who are these people coming to Africa and why? Yeah, I mean, so one of, in our research, we, we were basically, I mean, you've just asked the question we asked, really. Um, you know, we, we wanted people's sort of autobiographies, really, about why they came to Africa and, and what were the advantages. And, you know, again, it was, I think we naively thought at first there was going to be some kind of policy behind all of this. And certainly, I, mean, I think the, the fact that in, in China, Africa is, is in general, you know, risen up the, uh, the, the policy agenda has had an effect, however subliminally, that people think, well, there's something to be to be done there but one of the, the interesting things we found was that there's there's this uh, and, it, and it's, it's right in many respects is that the chinese are very good at spotting business opportunities but when we talk to both chinese businesses in west africa and to african traders they all said the reason i'm the chinese said the reason i came to nigeria to lagos or to to, to Kano or whatever was because I'd had a lot of orders from those areas from African traders or the African traders actually come to, to, to those manufacturing parts of China to order goods to take back to, to Africa. So one of, the, one of the kind of drivers of the inflow of the Chinese into whichever country has often been African traders who have kind of have been making those demands on the manufacturers. So I think it wasn't so that people were saying, well, I came because I used to sell furniture to this guy and then he came over and we went into joint venture and I came over and started my own manufacturing plant in Lagos, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's, there's these kind of connections, I think, that are not really rooted in a kind of formal policy, but those connections exist. We had other people who had come over, say, as, a, as an interpreter for a Chinese company. The company either went bust or, you know, diversified. They stayed on, set up their own business. Um, so there's a whole range of, of people coming for very different reasons. But certainly most of them we talked to said that they would, you know, I, I wouldn't want to sort of give a very broad average, but we had anywhere between three and six times the amount of income. They said, well, you know, the competition in China is so tight. If I was to go into business on my own, I really couldn't make a really big return. There's so many graduates out there who are really, you know, driving for this, that, and the other. I, you know, I come to Africa and come to Angola, post-war economy. You know, there's lots of opportunities. The in, indigenous kind of, uh, you know, capitalist class are really not well developed. There's not much income, not much income for investment. You know, I can make four to five times the amount of money in Angola as I could back in, in China. And they say, I'm going to ride the, you know, the economic kind of, you know, 
problems out for maybe 15 years. And, you know, so they, they, they see it as a kind of temporary thing, but they, they certainly see it as a, as a great economic opportunity. Giles, one of the things that you mentioned in this in this chapter um, that I found very interesting, because it overlaps with some of the, the research that I've done with, with uh, Lu Jinghao as well, um, was that there's a theme of boredom, you know, of, of that Chinese life in Africa is incredibly boring and that there's nothing to do. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, a little bit about that and how that shapes what Chinese actually do, how they live in Africa. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things we've been sort of playing with is this idea of the enclave. So when these big state projects, you see these kind of essentially parachuted in. So we've been looking, for example, a big dam project in Ghana. And, you know, there's a fence around it. The, the, the trucks are all Chinese. The, I was rooting through the bins, the, the cigarettes, the cooking all, all Chinese. They put, Chinese vegetables are, are grown there. So there's this kind of notion that they don't have much connection with with local society. When you look at these independent firms, and, you know, we have, you know, these can be very small, four or five people up to, you know, we have these conglomerates in, in Kano that employ about, you know, up to 20,000 Nigerians over the, the country. Um, but, you know, they, they obviously engage the local economy because they need to employ people. Um, so they're far less enclaved in that respect because, you know, and, and they many actually willfully employ local executives from Nigeria or Ghana because they understand the market better. But when it comes to their kind of social life, we were trying to probe and say, well, what, you know, what do you do? You know, do you have friends who are African? And, and you know, some did. And, 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 and as Eric said, you know, there is, uh, um, sorry, <laughs> as Howard said on the, on the, the recording, you know, there's intermarriage of uh, uh, taking place. So I think that this idea that the Chinese communities are very homogenous and very kind of disconnected is is true to a large extent, but not totally. And so we did we did ask that question about you know they kept saying well we're, we're bored and they go to these they set up these sort of karaoke clubs and it's just these Chinese guys getting <laughs> having a few too many beers and, and singing and you know it's kind of uh, you know we did quite, quite it was a great field work we did quite a lot of that a lot of drinking, drinking in your field work I imagine too and doing karaoke yeah <laughs> yeah and, and they said but they said you know there's the kind of uh, they said that it's very boring. There's not much to do, and they, they watch Chinese uh, satellite TV. And, and they do. but at the same time, the, the other side of that was a, was they, a lot did talk about the threat they felt from Africans. So that whether this had been robberies or you know the, the fact you know just small scale kind of um, you know asking for bribes and the rest of it. So it was a difficult one to read whether whether they they kept themselves themselves because of the, this felt well, the, the sense of external threat or whether they were just kind of much more happy to to you know mingle together really but certainly they did say that there wasn't a lot to do which i always found kind of bizarre seeing as whenever i go to kind of lagos or accra i've i've kind of inundated with things to do but anyway yeah but but this is one of the lines of uh, of questioning that just really pisses me off and and i'll explain why because i mean if you look through the average red cross workers garbage you know the average 24 yeah. year old american who's been sent over there and we've talked about this with the peace corps you're gonna find cornflakes you're gonna find non-fat milk yeah. you're gonna find western food and and i find it just so arrogant on the part of of western critics uh particularly in africa's listen aid workers there, you know who you are, and I'm talking about you, that you do not assimilate. <laughs> they don't go to the markets. You ask the local, you know, the average, you know, Western expat, and for the most part, they're not assimilating. They live in compounds oftentimes with security guards. They are in armed vehicles, many cases. The diplomats themselves, you know, the United States diplom- Diplomatic Corps has food flown in from Philadelphia every week. So I just think this mm-hmm. is, a, to me, it's a really weird line of questioning from Westerners 
to put towards a Chinese to say, well, they don't assimilate. And the history of Westerners in Africa has not been one of assimilation. It's been one of colonialization. It's been one of segregation, except South Africa. Now, South Africa makes it a very complicated issue, Ecobus. Yeah. Like, I wonder if, yeah, I'd I'd like to actually echo that. And, and, you know, there's frequently in this, um, in this, you know, kind of idea that that the Chinese refuse to assimilate, there is this um, assumption. And I think that's a, that's a kind of a, well, in my mind, it's a kind of a liberal Western assumption that, it's necessarily, you know, if, if the Chinese only wanted to, they'd be able to. You know, that the door is open to them to assimilate and they simply refuse to. While I think maybe in Africa it's a bit more complicated than that, I don't know that that door is necessarily always open. Um, and that they necessarily, have, you know, necessarily are the forums where that assimilation could happen. That they, you know, kind of, that, you know, kind of cosmopolitan forums where people mix um, on a kind of a, a, a non kind of non worker. Worker employer kind of basis, um, you know, those that might not necessarily be open to the Chinese, and for that reason, I think it's a very complicated issue. Um, Java, I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I mean, I, one thing we were we were sort of one of the patterns we, we we've kind of found was that certainly, uh, you know, I think one of the big arguments we're trying to make at the moment, really, and I mean, it's not particularly profound, but it kind of fairly obvious but not one that people talk about is that there's people fixate on kind of china and africa as these kind of and uh, these kind of big categories kind of ethnic and racial category and cultural categories that there are the chinese they do things this way that africans do things that way and the problem is china versus africa or china with africa however you frame it and actually you know if you look at the kind of the social networks that you see it's much more based along kind of social or economic class so you know we went into one of the big private chinese tn uh, multinational companies the a big it firm and and there you had you know you had nigerian executives mixing with uh chinese executives they'd go barbecues to each other's weddings play golf blah blah you know all the things you'd expect but they were of a particular social class and so it was less about that their kind of friendship was best based you know they worked for the same firm it was much more about their kind of common educational background their their you know their income levels etc than it was about the difference in culture yet we fixate on this notion of well there's the chinese africa divide and you know again there was an, an interesting study by uh, two german scholars about you know employer relations in a Ghanaian firm and they, you know they were saying well there was a lot of cultural misunderstanding and i think that might be correct but actually but the, the, the blatant fact of that was there was the Af- there was a Chinese employer employing African employees, and there's a, there's a power relationship there, and that that was that was affected as much of that relationship as it was anything to do with one being from Africa and one being from China. It was so I think we we tend to fixate on the cultural and the and the, the ethnic and not think about social and, pl- and economic class as much as we should. Well, one argument that I've made in the past on 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 our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com, and I'd like to hear what you think of it, is staying with your theory on class that that defines a lot of about the relationship between the migrants and the host population is that because a lot of Westerners, uh, for the most part, when I say Western, I mean whites, are, are there, um, and again, I'm discounting the Mozambican, Zimbabwe, South African, Kenya, the, you know, the 300-year, you know, your yeah. ancestors, Cobus, I'm discounting, uh, but a lot of the more <laughs> recent migrants who, who've come uh, don't have to assimilate because it's out of, because economically they're not required to, but a lot of these poor Chinese migrants who are 
who are coming uh, unofficially, not associated with SOEs, um, by virtue of economic necessity, must assimilate. They must live in the communities, eat in the communities, go to the bathrooms in the same communities as 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 the as the host population. So that requires a level of assimilation that you know I never had to do when I lived in Kinshasa. I, yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, it's interesting when we were in, you know, uh, walking through, you know, poorer parts of, uh, um, say, Lagos. But, you know, it was interesting. I, I'd got so used to people sort of shouting white man, white man in whatever local kind of di- dialect. And there people were kind of saw us as kind of fair skin and were shouting Chinaman, Chinaman. And I think, you know, there's I – mean, we were talking to people and they said, well, you know, one thing that we, we can't quite understand is you see these kind of Chinese – some of these Chinese guys and they look really scruffy, you know, and they're in flip-flops and, you know, slightly kind of worn trousers. And, you know, they, I think they understood that actually people were – some people were kind of connecting. They say, well, you know, China's rich, but it's not that rich. They're not that different from us really. Um, in a way, you'd never hear people talk about, say, a white British expatriate over there. They're always assumed and probably are very wealthy. And, but, you know, the, there is a whole range of, the, uh, of, of sort of social class classes amongst the Chinese. And I think, but certainly, yeah, there's, there is a, there's a, a large proportion that are not wealthy. They run these small shops. They live above them. People know the, the Chinese corner shopping. You know, uh, I was talking to Yun Park the other day at, at a workshop we organized. And she was saying she had these, you know, great photos of kind of very remote parts of the free state where, you know, there was one or two little China shops, which were, you know, giving things on credit and they become part of the community. And, and, and people know, yes, yes, they're, uh, you know, they're making money, but they're not kind of, you know, hand over fist, making huge sums of money and exploiting local people. I think there's a certain respect of that. Certainly, yes, a misunderstanding at times. But, yeah, they live amongst those communities and in a way that you'd never have a kind of British corner shop owner going to, you know, rural Ghana or ever, <laughs> as far as I can imagine. Yeah. So. Well, let's get back to this, the, the public rhetoric and the public perception uh, about uh, Chinese migrants and the reality. So one of the themes on our show that Cobus and I talk about, you know, if not every week, it's pretty close, it's at least every month, is this perception of a backlash that's happening. So we mm. saw a couple months ago in Cameroon there was a, there were, there was some fighting and some some violence uh, in Namibia. There's been a pushback against hair salons in Ghana. Certainly, there's been objection to Chinese migrants and gold mining. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, from your research on the ground, do you get a sense that the the sheer numbers of Chinese who now live in Africa, whatever they are, those numbers, uh, is getting to the point where it's a tipping point, as Malcolm Gladwell might say, that and, and people are. Are, are kind of saying, whoa, this is too much, too fast? Um, I mean, I think there's, there's, a, there's a mixture of responses. I mean, I think certainly, you know, in the case of, say, the, the expulsion of some, there was some what they were called artisanal, you know, small-scale miners in Ghana were, were kicked out. You know, again, it was around the lead-up to the elections, and I think there was a certain political capital being kind of played out there in the same way that Michael Satter in, in, in Zambia during his electoral campaigns very famously kind of stood on a quite, initially on quite an anti-Chinese card. So I think, you know, it, it plays up to a kind of nationalist perspective that, you know, we're in control of the economy. There's people in here kind of, you know, whether they're Chinese or whoever, Lebanese have been in the past, the kind of the people that were seen to, or, you know, in, and back in the 70s, it was kind of Asian, you know, Indian, South Asian uh, businessmen. So th- I think there's, there, there's that level of kind of backlash that's used for sort of certain political capital. Um, on a more everyday level, uh, 
I think, I mean, I think it varies. We did some, uh, you know, there's been a number of attitude surveys and people at Afrobarometer do this. And uh, we, we had our own attitude survey in our research. I've seen uh, Ian Taylor's done some work and, and, and Barry Soutman and others. You know, they generally show quite a high kind of uh, approval rate for, for China. You know, the, there is that, you know, the argument that people have made before. They bring in the kind of cheaper commodities that, uh, that many kind of everyday poorer Africans need. Um, and so if, you, for an, if, you're a, if you're a consumer, then it's not a bad thing. Where I think the kind of, the, the kind of the, the tension comes is, is around certain livelihoods. So you see, you know, for example, in parts of Ghana, there's been some action by fishermen, you know, uh, small-scale fishermen who are feeling the pinch of their livelihoods who, and they perceive it's the Chinese fishermen who are, are taking their livelihoods in, in, in the context of textile smuggling, for example. There's been, you know... It, so where there's a direct kind of impact on, on a particular group's livelihoods, then I think you're going to see those kind of... those tensions. But on a kind of more general, everyday level, I think, you know, people do, it, do appreciate what the Chinese do and, you know, what I'm interested in looking at now is, is, is what are the longer-term implications of all this infrastructure that the, the state-owned enterprises are building? You know, Deborah Boutingham's done a lot of work and, and the World Bank on the Africa infrastructure project showing the amount of infrastructure investment the Chinese are bringing, and we all know this uh, is going on. Now, some of this stuff is being built. Some of it, as we the whole debate on aid data says, you know, they're going to say they're going to build it and actually the money never arrives. And so, but actually finding out what, what that means. So in Ghana, you know, there's going to be 400 megawatts of new power on the, on the grid because of a big Chinese dam project. You know, for most people, that, we, we couldn't find anybody who were against this dam going ahead. You know, some of the environmentalists were talking about the, the kind of rhino, the, the hippopotamus population. But most people think 400 megawatts on the grid is going to be a good thing. And we, so I think, you know, so long as there's no major big kind of failure of that infrastructure, I think, you know, that's one thing that in the long term, I think, may play, play in the favour of, of, of further Chinese investment. Charles, on, on that theme, what we frequently find on our Facebook page is, this, is a kind of a, a, a nihilist view from Africans about about the future. Um, so you, fr- you frequently find this kind of theme that, that's almost masochistic um, in, in the sense that that you, you just people frequently just in general terms when we when we uh, you know link things about new uh, new resource extraction deals for example you'll just see a, a bunch of commentators going oh Africa is being plundered of its resources and you and you feel like okay Africa is actually selling these for money you know kind of um, the so do you do you share this this um, perception that there is a certain strain in African political discourse of this kind of masochist nihilism. Um, and do you think that how that you know kind of relates a to the Chinese and b to the way that the that the Africans relate to their own state, their own governments, frequently? Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, um, I mean, one of the issues I think is. Uh, you know the, the wide. You know, the, the, as you said, there's this kind of. You know, Africa is uh, China's been seen as the, the kind of imperialist in Africa, uh, and you know, yes, I think on the kind of there's a certain type of person who kind of enters the the kind of World Wide Web to have their to have their you know their say about these things. And you know, I can I, I, at one level, I, I come from a kind of critical political economist perspective, so I can you know, I, I don't think what the Chinese do alters the position of Africa in the global political economy. You know. They're still, as you say, supplying kind of raw materials to, to for industrialization elsewhere. So uh, I think what the, what the Chinese bring are, are choices for some African countries. And the, and the more adept, you know, I certainly think what's got in Angola and, and Sudan, you, you may not agree with the kind of politics of those countries, but they've been very adept at kind of using what the Chinese bring to kind of bolster power. Um, so... 
you know, in, in the bigger picture, I, I, yeah, I'm not hopeful that, the, that what China brings is going to kickstart kind of African development. You know, we're seeing these double-digit growth figures in, in a number of, uh, of African countries on the back of all these commodities that are being exported. But whether that in the long run makes a structural difference to those economies, I, I think, comes down to domestic policy, really. And um, well, well, and, and so, so I think in some senses, people I've, we interviewed people said, "Well, you know, we don't like what the Chinese are doing, but they're no worse, you know, they're no worse than what the West is do, has done before." You know, so I think there was a period people said, "Well, the Chinese are worse than anybody else," you know, and, and Satter's campaign was, "Yeah, they're, they're far worse than the West." Now people are saying, "Well, they're no worse than the West," <laughs> which is a great. Well, I don't know if that's, exactly a, a, that's a compliment or critique. Endorsement. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so well, for me, it's the kind of. Let's go on to our second topic, and, and it, we're going to move the order around a little bit, which is of this question of agency as well, since we're already here. Um, and, and it seems like there is, and again, just judging from perception, and I'd be interested to take get your take on whether or not it, there's something substantive behind it. Of course, we, we had a couple months ago Sanusi's comments out of Nigeria, the central bank governor, who really said that you know the relationship between Africa and China is one of that is so close to a neo-colonial relationship, in part, as you said, because of the dynamic dynamic of raw materials being exported to China that then are then re-imported back as finished goods. That is the basis of a colonial relationship, according to Sanusi. Then we hear out of Botswana, uh, the president there is saying he does not want to, uh, he, he wants to basically re- reorient the relationship that he has with Chinese companies and contractors. Uh, then just this weekend, actually, uh, you know, one of the most vocal critics, uh, actually not even, it's not fair to characterize him as a critic, one of the mo- most vocal advocates of reframing and refocusing the China-Africa relationship is Arthur Mutambara, the deputy prime minister out of Zimbabwe. He was in Business Day Live saying there is a way to have a win-win relationship, but it does require a reorientation of the relationship, and it requires Africa the ability to say no, the ability to insist on technology transfers, to insist on you know environmental protection protocols, and African governments must stand up to the Chinese. What's your take on on this on this trend that we're seeing, and if it actually is a trend, is there any substance to that, or are these just isolated cases uh, of of individual African political actors who are speaking out? Yeah, I, I think it's. I, I tend to think there is a potent, there is a bit of a trend. I mean, we, certainly, in, you know, as I said, th- this has been happening now. You know, this step up in kind of Africa's uh, China's engagement with Africa over the last ten years. And I think, yeah, certainly, taking Ghana as an example, they were very open to any new finance that came in. And so the Chinese were offering concessional lending. They're offering some aid. You know, there was a new IT spine put in place. They took it kind of, yes, we'll take that without a kind of particular strategic kind of engagement with the Chinese. So I think there was, there was a kind of very kind of a, a period when it was fairly uncritical. And I, and I think, yeah, over the last, you know, despite there's, yeah, there's been kind of politicos who've kind of whipped it up and said, this is, this is bad. But I think now we're seeing a more measured kind of engagement. Um, and certainly, I think that in the case of uh, some of these cases we've heard in, in Botswana, Zambia, uh, you know, uh, it, it, was, it seemed to me to be applying to a, a group of Chinese companies, those kind of independent but larger Chinese companies. So I think the big state-owned enterprises have a reasonably, you know, not totally, but a reasonably good reputation, do good work. Those financing deals seem to be uh, quite effective for both parties. It's some of the 
where they think they're beginning to be at see a clampdown and a backlash is on some of these independent ones, which are not subject to any of the regulations on the Chinese side. And as we know, the regulations on many, in many African countries are, are, are fairly poor. So I certainly think there is going to be a much more realistic assessment of what a particular Chinese you know, framework agreement or whatever can bring. And, and I think, you know, going to Ghana, I'm, I'm really pleased to see that, you know, for the first time that, that you know, when there was a, a big new injection of cash a couple of years ago, that it, it was debated in Parliament. You know, the other the other in, investments hadn't really, you know, they'd, they'd gone through the state, but not, not in any accountable way. Yeah, and now we say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of slightly clutching at smallest straws, but it, it does seem that, you know, it's, in many cases that there are more public debates and, and, and political debates about how this money is going to be used. But then, again, you, you, you kind of, yeah, you have to then look at where, where some of this revenue is going, and, and we certainly know that not all of it goes into the projects or yeah, it certainly doesn't it goes trickle into, down. It goes into so, pockets uh, is what it goes into. Cobus, uh, let, me get, yeah. let me get your take on this. You know, I guess what, what frustrates me about the Chinese is that They've been, you know, absolutely brutal when dealing with foreign companies coming into the China market. I mean, nothing, I mean, duplicitous, aggressive, you know, unwavering, enforcing foreign companies to do technology transfers, enforcing, you know, foreign companies to adhere to Chinese regulations and laws. And I guess, you know, what I find hypocritical on the part of the Chinese is that when they go, you know, to places like Africa or South America, supposedly the friend of the Southern world, you know, the, the, the leader of the South in many ways, you know, this non-aligned movement, kind of, you know, ideology and this, you know, win-win, they don't actually bring that ideology, ideology with them. They don't kind of offer up, you know, aggressively technology transfers or, you know, all the things that they impose on foreign companies coming into China. Do, is that hypocritical or am I missing something? Well, I think it might be at the same time hypocritical and for me not surprising. You know, kind of in the sense that I, I, I tend to, I mean, you know, this is capitalism. So people don't offer technologies unless they're forced. Yeah. And they don't offer these concessions unless unless there's a collective bargaining situation where they are made to do it. And of course, the, the, the genius of the Chinese situation is that they have such a ma massive market and that they are able to impose these rules, you know. Um, so I think part of the problem is that, and I think this is what Africans have been saying for a long time, and including people like Mutabara, is that Africa needs to find some kind of collective bargaining base from which to deal with with China um, you know you know I, I, I can't really obviously Chinese companies are they, they're trying to make profit like any other company you know kind of so mm -hmm. the, the the arena within that profit within which that profit is made needs to be set by the countries you know that 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 get the, the deals you know and those countries are Africa oh, yeah. so um, I actually wanted to to you know kind of move to slightly different um, theme. Um, Giles, in, in, in a recent article that you wrote about about agency, this issue of agency and African agency in relation mm. to China, you made the point that there is a certain amount of agency, um, but that that agency is frequently located in African elites, um, and that there isn't necessarily a, that much trickle down to normal Africans. That you know that um, Chinese tend to fre frequently tend to make deals with elites, and then you know kind of those yeah. the, the normal Africans would not necessarily see those profits. Um, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that and like whether you see that changing now that there's a greater amount of debate about these issues in some African countries. Yeah, I think, I mean, what we, the, the premise for the, for the paper really was that, you know, people have said, you know, talked about China-Africa relations in a, in a kind of 
a way that assumes that the Chinese, because they're a rising power, hold all the, the strings, basically, whether that's financial or political. And, you know, certainly you don't want to sort of, you know, invert that lens and say, well, actually, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a completely equitable relationship because that wasn't our argument either. But what we were trying to show was that actually... The, the, the way, you know, China has to engage with existing political structures and sometimes those political structures and the actors within them are very good at working what the Chinese can offer. So I think this notion, you know, we have all this debate within kind of international development and international relations about Africa, these failed states, and, you know, they have all these problems and, you know, whatever language you use, these states are not effective. And actually we found that... There's some very effective parts of those states able to broker and manage the relationship with the Chinese to their advantage. Now, you know, and it reminded me again of the, the period during structural adjustment, you know, when, when there were these little kind of cliques within the finance ministries who basically were, were of, of African, you know, Africans in those positions who work with the international organizations, financial organizations to kind of stitch up those adjustment programs and, and, you know, had massive impacts, as we know, across African countries. Uh, And I think we're seeing a similar pattern now that there there, there are parts of African states where uh, certain elites, certainly around the kind of the executive branch of the state and the presidents who who can gain quite a lot of advantage, not just personal advantage. I mean, this can be capitally then used to, 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 win elections or the legitimacy they gain by, you know, a new road going through a particular region or whatever is good for their political careers. So I I certainly think that it's not a one-sided relationship. What my worry is, and I think you you summed that up, is that this isn't really, there's there's particular parts of of the African political elite that are benefiting and it's not a kind of general uh, uh, kind of process of benefiting. Whether that will spread, I it's difficult to say, I and mean, I think you know it may be very indirect. You know, you know, in the case of Ghana, people have talked about it as being what they call the kind of uh, competitive uh, patrimonial system, basically. So, you know, it has it has a two-party system, very very competitive elections. But to win those elections, you need to kind of hand out various things to your kind of party faithful and it's those kind of resources whether those are kind of schools or whatever that that i think some of this chinese money might be able to facilitate i don't but that's probably as far down the kind of trickle as it's going to go i think i I, you know i don't think it's going to be a wide-scale political participation in these kind of debates you know my reading of this is that there seem to be oh i'm sorry kobus there, there seem to be two contradictory trends that are happening here one is that china will increasingly have to stop looking at africa as a single entity and we'll have to start forming bilateral policies for each of the countries as, as it becomes you know, much more detailed and their relationship matures. Conversely, what we're hearing from you and from Cobus as well is that Africa will have to form, you know, will have to gain leverage as a group to deal with China as a singular entity. So in some ways, they're going in opposite directions. Is that a, uh, a misreading of it? Um. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, you, you know, if you look at, you know, if, and it comes back to the, the, the issue around, say, about around human smuggling. And there's not, I mean, there's not, say, for example, in West Africa, we're not really seeing a strong ECOWAS kind of response to China. 
whether that's around investment. I mean, there's lots of kind of nice sounding policy statements saying, yes, of course, we welcome all this. And there's be some, you know, there'll be some trade agreements signed. But uh, essentially, the response on the African side hasn't been particularly coordinated. You know, and so we're still seeing a very strong kind of bilateralism. And, and when it comes to things like, you know, humans, uh, migrants smuggling or, you know, uh, smuggling of goods, you know, all we might see is some strengthening or some alteration to a national law to try and regulate essentially a bilateral relation. I, I, I'm yet to see a kind of pan-African or even a regional, convincing regional response to any of this, which slightly worries me, but... Um, it may it may come. I don't know. But, I mean, the problem is that the, the problem is that these bilateral deals benefit. As I've said, coming back to the previous point, if they benefit the uh, kind of say an incumbent regime, then it's not in the interest of that regime to start kind of kicking up too much of a fuss at a kind of regional or or, or, or continental level to to sort of try and regulate that because these are the very people that benefit from that relationship. So it's, it's a kind of structural problem about how how do you how you kind of transform that. There you go, Cobus. That right there, I think, is the is the key point, which is that, uh, you know, a, a pan-Africanism, of course, has been a dream for, for decades now. It's never really come out, uh, in part because the elites don't have aligned common interests with one another. So, so this is where, on our Facebook page, we constantly hear this kind of cry for, you know, for, for China to do more to Africa or for Africans to stand up to, to China to work as a, blue, a group and a bloc. But based on what we've heard from Giles, it, it just won't happen. I think another reason why it probably won't happen is because there is a lot, um, you know, implied within a lot of the kind of anti-China rhetoric that comes out of parts of Africa is a lack of trust in the African state itself. So there is, a, a, you know, an, an implication that I think that's, that's frequently so assumed in Africa that there's even there's no need for people to actually even articulate it that this, the the state and the government is inherently so corrupt that you know kind of any kind of deal that's made between the government and, and China or any kind of other external actor including you know actors like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund for example is you know impl- implies some kind of you know inherent corruption um, you know so so frequently there's this kind of um, resentment oh these Chinese they're so you know they're stripping Africa what's not being said there is you know kind of there are shadow deals being made between our government or there's this kind of assumption that there are shadow deals being made by which you know kind of name your African government and you name your external actor and I think this incredible level of distrust between normal Africans and African governments that is something that that I think is not looked at enough and I think it's, it's really it's a it's a determining factor in in the way that that new new arrivals like china for example are, are treated in africa frequently well the one place where that actually may not be true and 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 i don't mean to contradict you here uh, kobus is actually in ghana where there there does seem to be a growing faith in go- in government particularly as, as giles said because there's been a lot more transparency there when it comes to dealing with the chinese uh, on the legislative side uh kobus tell us a little bit about a new immigration law that's been going through and we're Coming back to our first topic now, talking about migration, but it's very interesting to see a couple key events that have been happening in Ghana. And Ghana, of course, is one of those places where we seem to get more and better quality information than we do from other countries in the region. So tell us a little bit more about what's going on about this immigration bill that's making its way through the legislative process. 
Well, um, this immigration bill, I think, is one of one of the rare instances in Africa where of of a, of a recognition that Africa is now both the recipient and and the source of of, of migrants. Um, you know, so so there is uh, an awareness um, in this bill that that Ghanaians are being smuggled and trafficked and you know kind of in, in different all kinds of um, uh, corrupt ways to other countries, but also that that all kinds of people are being smuggled and trafficked and you know and so on in, into into Ghana at the same time. Um, so what we recently saw also in this week um, is that you know uh, an immigration officer in Ghana was arrested for actually trafficking chi- um, nine Chinese people into Ghana, um, and you know this uh, this kind of created a whole you know kind of whole flap in the Ghanaian press. Um, and you know so so uh, it was very interesting. It's interesting to see the Ghanaian government kind of setting up legislation to actually deal with this new reality. Giles, do you see Ghana as as being an outlier in some ways uh, on the continent in terms of the way that they've been dealing with the Chinese, both on natural resource extraction, on immigration, and trying to do what Mutambara wants them to do, which is to reorient the relationship to be more equitable? Um, I I don't think it's on its own. I I do think there are, you know, some, I mean, I think that a broad lesson is where, you know, countries are prepared to enforce certain laws that exist on the statute, then you do see those, you know, it's a fairly straight kind of institutional kind of argument. Um, so, say in this, this big dam project, you know, the law that set up that dam project with the Chinese you know, enshrined the use, the, the the rights of trade unions there. And, you know, initially when the Chinese came in, they didn't have any trade union recognition. The TUC went in and said, look, it's in the law. It's also in Ghanaian law more generally that any foreign investor has to honour, you know. And, you know, the Chinese said, fine, OK, well, we'll recognise the union. And actually, it was a very, it's been quite a good relationship. Wages went up, contracts were, were kind of more regularised and not these short-term ones where people were coming and going. So I think, you know, and I think, I'm not saying Ghana's unique in that, but I think the lesson is where countries are willing to do that then um, you are going to get greater benefits but at the same time you know when you delve into the kind of environmental protection that went in on the dam you know a load of regulations and permits weren't honoured by the Chinese because the Ghanaians never enforced it they kind of ex post kind of said right you better sign this off so I mean I I don't want to say that Ghana's this kind of you know rosy picture of how things might be but I certainly think there's evidence that it's getting some things right and, it, and again you know there has to be purposive policy so for example what we've seen in um, in many countries is a lack of an industrialization policy no training and so the Chinese say well you know we can't get skilled people of course we're going to bring our own workers in if we've got to get something done in two years you know we're going to we're going to bring in the skilled workers to get that done so unless governments in Africa are prepared to say well okay long term we have to invest much more in vocational training so we can produce these skilled trade craftsmen who could work on these kind of projects then you know uh, it's not going to happen so uh, I, I tend to broadly agree that you know that the Chinese aren't doing anything too different from what they would that, that you know they're capitalist enterprises they're doing what capitalist enterprises have done in, in africa for a long time and elsewhere and if if, if african governments aren't prepared to kind of enforce the regulation exists or, or, or then i don't think there, there will be you know and I, I don't think that's a china issue if that was a, a swiss company or a canadian company or a british company or whoever you know they, they're going to get away with 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 bad performance 
if, yeah, I, if the local state I guess do that, that just so. disappoints me a little bit in some senses because if we talked about the perception gap and the rhetoric gap that you that you've mentioned you know you know liberal global, liberal western capitalism makes no pretenses it's you know dog eat dog go out and you know get everything you can and, and kind of you know feed your shareholders uh, but the Chinese come out and say something totally different they actually their their public rhetoric is win-win their public rhetoric is mutual development and their state-owned companies aren't living up to that public rhetoric and it's the one area where the Chinese government actually has some leverage it's on the, the SOE yeah. or presumably has some leverage apparently they don't or they don't have the will and so I guess in some ways as you said or in Cobus both said they're behaving like capitalist enterprises but yet that's where if their rhetoric actually equaled that, then I'd be like, okay, we're here to make money and that's it, you know, take it or leave it. But there's, they're not saying that. They're actually saying we're here to make, you know, to do a win-win economic partnership. The FOCAC, you know, rhetoric is so lovely and beautiful, but it doesn't seem to be bearing itself out in the SOE sector. But Eric, I think to be fair, um, you know, also Western companies tend to to, to frequently use a yeah, kind of true. a win-win uh, rhetoric because I mean we're in a, a corporate social responsibility era, you know. So so they're all building clinics and or you know advertising their their clinic. And their Shell is doing great anyway, things you know, for the so, people of Nigeria. Yeah. You're right. Shell exactly, is doing such exactly. wonderful things. So um, well, listen, that is all the time that we have for in this uh, in this episode of of the China and Africa podcast. Uh, I just want we've made a couple references this week uh, all as we do every week to our, our, our Facebook page. And we are now at 65,000 followers, mostly from Africa wow. on this page. It's incredible. Giles, I don't know if in your class you should share this. It's a great teaching tool. We've got uh, some professors <laughs> in Botswana who are using this as a teaching tool in their Chinese political science class. Uh, but it's really... No, no, it's excellent. So What's fantastic about it is that you get to have a, a real conversation with these issues by the people who are directly related and affected by them. Uh, so we, we're just very excited. I, I guess I say 65,000 in part because Cobus and I are just giddy over that it's gotten this big. <laughs> so, I mean, we're just kind of amazed. But what's incredible about this, too, is that uh, 80% of the population of our Facebook community is predominantly African and predominantly 18 to 24 years old. So there is really a very, very high level of engagement on the part of youth. And you'll see, on, for the most part, it's very, very lightly edited. Uh, so we basically take out swear words and we take out spam. But that's about it because um, we really want an, a, a really healthy kind of vibrant intellectual discussion so really recommend that everybody go there we've got some folks like uh, Mac Massey who posts almost every day we're getting people like uh, the African Economic Development Plan who posts uh, quite regularly and Gathaiga Henry as well she's uh, or he is getting involved in, uh, in in the community so we really encourage you to check out that of course if you want to follow us on Twitter we're all on Twitter Cobus where can people find you on Twitter if they want to kind of stay on top of what you're reading and following. I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Now, now, Giles, you know, this whole social media thing isn't really in vogue with the academic types. Are you, uh, are you, are, are you out there on the social networks at all? Uh, should be more. We do have a Twitter feed from my department, uh, which is Open University and then DPP. Uh, okay. Endeavor. I'm going training soon to do more of this. So. Nice. You've got to keep up with I your really, students. I've got, I've got to go. give, me, give me that Twitter address one more time again for, for your department. It's Open University and then DPP. Okay. So Open University, DPP. And, so, and what does DPP stand for? 
it's development policy and practices. Nice. Okay, so develop, which makes sense given that uh, you're in the international development program. And, and of course, if you'd like to follow me, I'm at eolander, e-o-l-a-n-d-e-r, tweeting almost every day on the top China Africa headlines. So it's a good way to kind of stay on top of the big stories, almost like a, a newswire. And of course, if you'd like to follow our podcast, we're in all the places you need to find us. Uh, in South Africa, in particular, we're on the BlackBerry Network, also on Stitcher and SoundCloud, and of course on iTunes. Just look for China Africa in the iTunes store and we'll pop up right there. So thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next Sunday with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. 